If you have interest into a behind-the-scenes look at Georgia politics from someone who is in the middle of it for over three decades, you will enjoy this conversation. But if you want to learn a bit about what separates real leaders from all the others who are in a position to lead, turn your ears on. Larry Cohen Walker II is a mild-mannered Southern gentleman and servant leader who accomplished much in his life for his family, his city, his county, and the state of Georgia. These are not just words of flattery. He has the receipts to back them up. A man who spent his life utilizing diplomacy, decency, tolerance, fairness, and compassion, he was never afraid to take a stand as to his own principles, even if the stand was not popular. You will also see that Larry Walker was gifted with an extra dose of plain old common sense. As of this interview, he and his beauty queen bride, Janice, have been married for some 59 years. They produced four wonderful children, and he will talk about his pride for all of them and their quiver of a total of 12 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A native and lifelong resident of Perry, Georgia, Larry is a graduate of the University of Georgia Law School and also has an undergraduate degree in business from the same institution. He has practiced law in Perry for almost six decades and early on served stints as Perry Municipal Judge and Perry City Attorney. In 1972, Larry was elected to the Georgia House of Representatives, where he would serve for 32 years and would become one of the most powerful and well-respected men in the state of Georgia. After his long tenure in the Georgia House of Representatives, he served for two and a half years on the State of Georgia Transportation Board and then another seven years on the University System of Georgia Board of Regents. He is also a master storyteller and writer and authored a book entitled Life at the Nat Line that is full of stories about Georgia politics and just plain folks he has known in his life. He also became a newspaper columnist, entertaining and intriguing his readers for years in middle Georgia. For you Georgia folks, if you have ever attended the Georgia National Fair, located at the beautiful Ag Center that, by the way, draws around a million people per year to Larry's small middle Georgia town, you have noticed the four-lane highway running in front of it. It is called Larry Walker Parkway, another one of the documented receipts of his talent, hard work, and determination. One of the most pivotal moments in Larry's political career was when he was asked to walk the six and a half feet from his desk to the well of the Georgia House of Representatives to have the last word during the debate on the very controversial bill to change the Georgia state flag. One, he says, was a short walk physically, but a very long one politically. You will hear the behind-the-scenes story, and will even hear some of that historical speech straight from the mouth of the one who wrote it and delivered it. Above all, throughout this conversation, and as you listen to him, you will pick up on traits and characteristics of a great man who has been determined to use the gifts and skills God gave him to make his world a better place. This is the story of the life and politics of Larry Walker. 
from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. This is Bruce Goddard, and you're listening to the View from a Hearse podcast. Man, I've got with me a special guest today, Larry Walker. He's a attorney in Perry, Georgia, long-term attorney, been in Georgia politics. If you're interested in Georgia politics, uh, you need to pull up a chair here and start listening to this. Larry, thank you so much for jumping on here with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Bruce, and I'm so honored and to be on your, on your show. And uh, thank you so much for letting me express uh, myself on some of the issues that, that might be facing us. I thank you very much for it. Just so everybody knows, Larry is retired, but he's sitting in his law firm, so he still goes in. I think you said every day, Larry, he's still going strong, but even in going strong, what I sense from my conversations with Larry is you've had a wonderful life and still going, but you've had a great run, haven't you? I've had a great run, yes, sir. I've been been blessed and beyond words almost. I was born into a wonderful family, wonderful parents. I have uh, four children, nine grandchildren, three great-grandchildren. They all live right in the area, and we see them, and uh, had a good law practice, did some really interesting things, uh, especially for for a small-town lawyer, and uh, I'm very, very, very blessed. Uh, couldn't, Couldn't have had a better mother and daddy, I'll be honest with you. Let's talk about them just a minute, because I know that you talk about your daddy. You're right about your daddy and mama and the influence they had on you. Why don't we start there and just briefly talk about them, Larry, and the influence they had on your life? Well, they were they were uh, small town people. In fact, my daddy lived out on uh, his his mother and daddy's farm, which was between two dirt roads. That was in Washington County, Georgia. A lot of dust. Uh, no air conditioning. Uh, when I first uh, came into the world, they didn't have water in the house. <laughs> but from there, they uh, did extremely well by us, and Daddy did well uh, financially as far as uh, making the living for all of us, and, uh, I, and and so good, and such devout Christians, really. Right. I don't think you can say it any other way, and I, I had a great uh, coming up in, in Perry, Georgia. When I came back to practice law in Perry uh, in 1965, there were about five or six thousand people in Perry. Now that today there are about 25,000 people in Perry, so it's grown. Right. Uh, I have participated in that uh, growing and, and financially, and, and have done well, and, and just feel like I'm so blessed. But especially about my mother and daddy and four grandparents that loved me. Yeah. loved all of us, but glad to still be here at 81 years of age and, and uh, doing some work and, and participating in community affairs and going to lunch with friends and coming to the law office every day and seeing the wonderful staff that we have and they, you know, they act like they're glad to see me and it makes me feel mighty blessed and mighty good. Well, not only did you have a great parents and siblings and had great influence. I've read what you've written. Uh, I know they meant a lot, but you also did well when you got your bride, Janice, didn't you? I think uh, Janice might be the most popular female in Perry. Everybody loves Janice, and I love Janice. And Janice, uh, 
although we were limited in what we had, Janice had less. She lived in a house that didn't have running water. She is so, uh, she loves everybody. If she doesn't love you, you may not love you because she started off loving you. And <laughs> everybody loves Janice and uh, they ask me about her when she's not with me and I can just tell that they're crazy about Janice. She came in to Perry, her daddy was with the Atlanta Journal of Constitution and they transferred him to this area and she came to Perry at Christmas about 10th grade. She knew nobody. She had come from uh, Quitman where in the 10th grade she was the uh, homecoming queen. <laughs> and uh, she was pretty. She liked everybody. It didn't matter, rich, poor, from the least financially in school to and, and country boys and girls. And you get a lot of attention. Janice was just as nice to them as she was everybody else. Mm. And she became the homecoming queen at Perry High School in the 12th grade. How about that? And uh, I told her, I said, I've never heard of anybody being a homecoming queen in two different schools. And, <laughs> uh, Janice was, uh, was and is just a wonderful human being. And I, I was fortunate that she, uh, after a lot of persuasion on my part, that she, she agreed to marry me. And we've had a great life together. I know she also not only been your wonderful wife, but she's also been your confidant, somebody you went to for advice. And I think people are going to find it interesting. But you just mentioned you have four wonderful kids, and you've got one of your sons is in the state senate now. We're going to talk about you being in the House of Representatives for 30-something years, but you've got uh, one son that's followed you to Atlanta, right? Yes, sir, and, and uh, he's, he's Lawrence Cohen Walker III. Right. Well, they call him Larry Three in Atlanta, and I guess I'm Larry Two now. I used to just be Larry, <laughs> but it was Daddy was Lawrence Cohen Walker Senior, and then it was me, Lawrence Cohen Walker Junior, and then it was Lawrence Cohen Walker the Third, Lawrence Cohen Walker the Fourth, and Lawrence Cohen Walker the Fifth. Uh, Daddy's name was Cohen. We're not Jewish, although that is a Jewish name primarily. And uh, Daddy went by Cohen. None of the rest of us until we got Lawrence Cohen Walker the Fifth. He's about eight or nine months old, and he's little Cohen. He's Cohen, and uh, we're so proud of that and tickled by it. Oh, I'm sure. And uh, we all live right here in the area. Let's talk about your your politics. Let's get into that. And I, I really want you to tell the story. You spent 32 years of your life in the House of Representatives, and that whole story, I want people to hear about it. But before we do that, I want you to talk about how you got this political bug my granddaddy was, was Charles P. Gray. He was a cameraman at Universal Studios before he came to Georgia. And uh, he and my daddy had, were in the farm equipment business and they were also in the feed and seed business. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time there. I, I went to work. Daddy believed in working and I believe in it too. I think my work uh, experiences were more important to me in life than my play experiences, frankly. But he would take me with him to the tractor place, or as I got older, he would he would drop me off at the feed and seed store where I worked. And uh, I was constantly with older people, and they they accepted me, and they they liked me, and I liked them, and. The men, would, uh, the old, older men, they would go to uh, the Perry Cafe on Saturday night after they got out, out of, got through working and eat a steak. <laughs> and they got where they would invite me to go with them. And there I was with, with 
men that were 40, 50, 60, maybe 70 years old, and I was maybe 12 years old. And uh, I was sitting in there listening to them. I, tr I tried not to talk very much, and I don't think I did talk a lot. But uh, I listened to what they had to say. I listened when I was working with them, uh, or where they were, I listened to what they had to say. And I think I learned a lot from, from listening to these older people, and I don't think that happens much anymore. There's a lot of wisdom that comes with age. <laughs> And sitting down yeah. and listening to people can change the course of somebody's life. And I think it did yours. And certainly you got this, this thing for politics. And we're going to talk about that. Before you got into that, you went to, to the University of Georgia. And you're, you're a double dog there. Yes, sir. I've got a business degree and I've got a law degree. From the University of Georgia. So you've been a true bona fide Georgia Bulldog your entire life. And so... You left there and came back to Perry as whatever you were, 23 years old. I didn't ever have any desire to go anywhere but back to Perry. I loved Perry. Uh, so many nice people, and I was so excited to come back and open my little law office and had a had a two two room uh, law office and came back to Perry. And I was uh, it started in in uh, 1965 in June of uh, practicing law. And then I had had Laird the third in June of that year and learned I'd pass the bar exam in June. So June of nineteen sixty five was a big big thing for me. You were quickly as a twenty three year old appointed the Perry municipal judge, right? Yes, sir. I was I actually started off at first, although I was running this little office in Terry, I was working for two lawyers in Warner Robins, and they were paying me $400 a week. One day, the mayor of Perry, Dickie Ray, who was later in the Congress of the United States, came to see me. Now, here I am, 23 years old, and he said, would you be interested in being the Perry Municipal Court judge? I said, uh, well, tell me about it. Incidentally, this was a part-time job, but he, he told me this. Right. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, you meet once a, once a month and uh, at the city hall, and you have court on Saturday morning, and uh, we'll pay you $150 a month. I said, yes, sir, I'm very interested in it. <laughs> I was getting a raise from 400 to $550, and it was going to take me about a, an hour or two a month, uh, I thought, to, uh, to earn it. And I became the Perry Municipal Court Judge, and it was really interesting that they would they would bring them into court, and then it was um, the defendants. They would all, you honor this and you honor that. And <laughs> that was pretty heady stuff for a 23-year-old. Oh, and yeah. I in that role for six years, and then they asked me to be the, the Perry City attorney. And I did for about eight years. I was active in, in being the... Uh, city attorney, and then my brother David, who was really doing a lot of the work, he was a law partner also, he, he became the, the uh, city attorney. And in fact, I told him, I said, David would be real proud if y'all just named him the city attorney. <laughs> and they did. And we kept it for 40-something years from beginning to end. And finally, we just got so busy, we could not devote enough manpower in time to do it, and we asked, we said, it's time for Perry to have a full-time attorney, and that's what they did. And 
we've been close to the city for many, many, many years. You also, as judge, you presided over a case in the 60s that, that you have written about uh, and you talk about and where you learned some basic common sense principles and, of, and compassion that would take you a long way in your career, I believe. My daddy was chairman of the school board in the county. They elected him every time he ran. He served for 22 years, and they re-elected him chairman every two years. And the school board, uh, when they uh, integrated, they hired a, a uh, black principal for one of the schools who was an outstanding man, really. And for some reason, he got crossed up with, uh, with the civil rights people, and they demonstrated, and they... There was about 500 people that dem- demonstrated, and they they did not get a, a parade permit. They didn't get a permit to do this, and as a consequence, they got locked up, and they had them locked up in Perry, and they had it in Warner Robins, and Fort Valley, maybe, and, and uh, different places, and also in a, in a form of public works camp down in Dooley County. And, there I was, uh, by then, what, 25 years old. Here we had all, we had 500 people locked up. And I suggested that they have a test case and bring two or three forward and we would uh, hear, hear, hear their uh, situation. Then we would let whoever wanted to appeal it, who, who, who wanted to appeal it, appeal it. They came and I, I listened and we made some little small, we, we found them guilty for parading without a permit. We uh, <clears throat> fined them probably $25 each or something. It was very, very minimum. They had excellent lawyers. Billy Randall, who I later served with in the state legislature, was one of them. I got to be good friends with them. And they <clears throat> did a good job and they appealed the case. I found them guilty. They appealed it to the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans. Now, now it's the 11th Circuit in Atlanta was where, where you would appeal it. Right. But it was the 5th Circuit in New Orleans, and then we didn't hear any more out of it for two or three years. I, I thought it was all over. And then out of the blue one day, we got the ruling from the, uh, the 5th Court in New Orleans, and they ruled in favor of the city of Perry. And we had people in Perry that wanted to get off to go pick up all of these 500 people and bring them back to court and find them. And I said, we don't need to do that. We're going to stir up something now. All this stuff is settled down. And we really don't need to do that. This is a mistake to try to do that. And the city council and mayor agreed with me. And it just died out is what happened. But that was pretty uh, uh, heavy stuff for a young lawyer and a young judge like I was. But you were demonstrating capabilities or characteristics that you would take with you the rest of your career, and that is a little common sense and compassion goes a long way, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I uh, you know, there were a lot of sad cases that came in, and I never was really, really hard on those kind of people. And I've got a really, really good friend uh, now, but as a youngster, he was rough, and he had a had a partner that he ran with, and he was rough, and they were they were tough kids, and uh, they they were uh, harassing uh, African Americans, and they came into court for the second time, and I told them I said, now this, we can't put up with this. Well, I never they never came back in, 
time goes on, and uh, about two years ago, he, he goes to church. He's a good church member. At the church one day, he said, uh, Mr. Larry, I want to talk to you if you don't mind. If you could come over here, I want to talk to you a minute or two. Hmm. And I thought, oh, Lord, here it comes. After all these years, here it comes. Hmm. And uh, we went off to the side. And he brought that back up like I thought he might. And he said, I, I want to tell you that what you said to us that day changed my life. Hmm. And I was so relieved and so overjoyed, actually. And uh, he works with me now on the farm. He's just excellent in all respects. And I uh, I just am, am so happy that, I, that he will work with me. And we're real good friends, and we do have some social interaction and but you just don't ever know i mean you never know who you're going to affect by what you do and say to them and what you also don't know that somebody that thinks they're your enemy may be ended up being your friend it's according to how you react and how you deal with whatever it is you're dealing with i'm sure that is true for sure so you started 25 years old thrown into these big, big cases and you having a to quickly understand why you're sitting on the bench and also being an attorney, but you're having to judge these cases. You grew up in a hurry, but then you started thinking about running for it. And most people on here are going to know Sam Nunn's name. He was a U.S. senator, probably could have been president of the United States if he'd have run. When he resigned, I guess, to run for U.S. Senate. What his intention was was to create a middle Georgia representative district, U.S. representative district. And that's what he was going to do. He was going to go to Atlanta in his capacity as a state legislator and get his friends to help him create a middle Georgia congressional district. And he he invited me to join his law firm. He said, I, I would put you, bring you in as a partner and, uh, and, and our law firm. And I thought about that. I said, you know, if he he uh, he runs for the United States Senate, I might run for his seat. <laughs> so he he did not get his middle Georgia district. He could not get enough votes, I guess, to get the district. And so he just decided to run for the United States Senate. And uh, he was a, a long shot. I mean, people they had Sam Nunn was kind of a he was a. People had their eye on him. He was a real good basketball player. He made himself a good basketball player. He was a good student. He was a good man. He kind of had a superstar on his forehead from the time he was a little boy. And uh, uh, But anyway, he, he uh, ran for the United States Senate, and after a lot of deliberation and back and forth, uh, uh, I decided I'd run for for his spot in the in the state house, and uh, he ran for the Senate and got elected. I ran for the House and got elected. As you were making that decision, I know that that you had two people you get advice from, and one of them was your daddy, and one of them was Janice. Yes, I, that's right. And I went to see Daddy, and it, and and I went to see him several times. In fact, I went to see him about any big big decision I had to make. Even when I went out to Texas and worked in the steel mill saving my money, I wrote Daddy a letter. It's kind of funny now, but I wrote him a letter, and I still have it somewhere. And I said, Daddy, would it be all right with you and Mother if I asked Janice to marry me? 
and they wrote back and said they would be fine. And uh, I did, and she accepted, to, somewhat to my surprise, not really, <laughs> but uh, that all. But any big decision, I talked to Daddy about it because he's the wisest person I've ever known. I know he was my daddy, but I'm telling you, he was he was very uh, smart about. Uh, he chaired that school board all the way through integration. And he and, and uh, Dave Perdue, the United States Senator David's dad, they handled all of the integration and they did an excellent job with it. And, but Daddy had a lot of common sense and, and he, he was real good in the farm equipment business. He was he was good dealing with people. He let them down easy. They would. He, as a school board chairman, they would come in there with some kind of an idea that probably wasn't all that good. And Daddy would say, we surely appreciate you coming to see about us about this. And uh, I see what you're talking about, but we're not going to be able to do that right now. But we might take another look at this in the future. And I so, so much appreciate you being involved and, and, and having ideas. And they would go away... I didn't get what I wanted, but it, it, but at least I thought I had a good idea. But when you went to him to uh, talk about political run, he didn't immediately tell you, yeah, that's a great idea. He pushed back a little bit, right? He would say to me, well, Larry, you're just getting your law practice started and you're getting a family started, and I just don't know. So I had told the House of Home Journal, which is a local paper, I would let them break the news as to whether or not I was going to run, and I would let them know by a certain date. And that date came, and I went to see my dad that morning, and and uh, they, he never had encouraged me very much. And I told him, I said, Daddy, I just I thought about this thing and what you had to say about my family and getting my law practice started, and I'm going down to the paper when I leave here and tell them I am not going to run. He said, oh, I don't know about that, Larry. I don't know about that. Now, let's talk about that. That was the first time he'd ever acted like he thought I ought to run. <laughs> and when I went there to tell him I was not going to run, and when he, we got through talking, I went down and told him I was going to run. So that's how close I came not to having run at all. You were listening to your daddy's advice. There's another lesson there. You weren't about to – if you didn't make the move to get married without talking to them, you certainly – wasn't going to run for political office without talking to them. But you also went to Janice for advice, too. What was her feedback? Janice has been a, a great uh, – she's been, she's been great to, to keep me on the, on the right track. And she's so kind and generous, and she could – be things that she thought were a little harsh, or, uh, and she would always uh, – she, she just is a, just a wonderful person, and she was a great – counterweight to me and some of my ideas about things and and uh between janice and daddy uh i had two wonderful advisors and they they kept me on the straight and narrow and i ran i ran 16 times and the first time i ran i had an opponent then then i had my second opponent 24 years later <laughs> and that's the only two i had uh in in i, I ran for 32, 32 years and all. And I had run as a Democrat, as all people uh, ran if they wanted to get elected at that time when I started, and then it started changing. And the person that ran against me, 
24 years later, ran as a Republican in a Republican county, a strong Republican. And I think I got 63, 64% of the vote then. But it was the times were changing. Well, the, the point is, that the, the interesting thing to me is, you obviously were a smart man. You, kind of, you had this bug. You knew what you wanted to do. But you were not moving until you talked to at least to the two people that you went to for advice and you got their blessing. I, it sounds like to me and what I read and in talking to you is I don't think you'd ever run if your dad would have said, not don't do this, because you were about to tell him you were not going to run. And I think the same with Janice, Absolutely, right? I would not have run. I mean, I had to have Eddie's support and help, and he would have helped me anyway. Right. He told me don't run, and I went down there and signed up to run. He would have still supported me, but... I wanted him to, I wanted to do what he thought was best because I was torn by it. I well, really I'm sure. Was. What they were saying was true. I had young children. I just started my law practice. Uh, that was all very, very true. On the other hand, these uh, opportunities don't come around, you know, often. It might not have ever been another good opportunity uh, if had I not run. And you know, the, the way I look at it, Larry, God has a plan, and you went about it the right way, and yeah, there, there was reasons not to do it, but, but you followed your heart, you got advice, you got their blessing, and what an outcome. I mean, when you look back, can you, can you imagine it being any different now? I want to talk about this first campaign especially, because here you are, you finally jump into the world of politics, now you're really running for state representative and, and going to take Sam Nunn's seat, you're running for Sam Nunn's seat, and all of a sudden, you've got this competitor down in Sly County, and that was an interesting story that, that he was convinced he was that it was pretty close. He had you convinced that you may not win this thing, too, so talk about how that came about. Well, uh, I, I did. I spent about th $3,500, $3,000 or $3,500, and I, I uh, advertised in the local little local newspapers to me. I uh, might have been on the radio once or twice. I don't know, but I didn't spend much money. I didn't have much money, but I did go see a lot of people. But my opponent kept telling everybody how badly he was going to beat me. And I didn't, I didn't really know that I was going to win. It sounded pretty good to me, but I never had been in a political campaign before. And uh, my dad told me on the day of the election, he said, go to every precinct. Don't, don't ask him to vote for you or do anything illegal. Just be seen and speak to the people and move on. They probably wouldn't even let you do that now. But that's what he told me back then. And that's what I did. And I, I went down to a little precinct down in Sly County, uh, Englishville, Englishville precinct. Just to let everybody know, Sly County is a pretty long way from Perry. I mean, the, the geography is not like it's the next county over. You had to do, a, what is it, an hour yes. and 15 to 20 minutes to Sly County from Perry? Yes, and I, I didn't know anybody in Sly County. Nobody right. did I know in Sly County when I started. I had Macon County. I did know two or three lawyers over in Macon County, and that's about it. And I was out trying to get, you know, people learn who I was. And, but I ran into my opponent in Englishville. And I asked him, I said, uh, you, you've been going all over the district telling people how badly you're going to beat me. 
I said, uh, what do you really think about it? He said, well, Larry, I think it's going to be mighty close, but I, if I don't do anything else, I'm going to care. So I can Now, you would think he would have said, what do you think? But he didn't ask me what I thought. Right. And that was pretty much how he was. I'm, I'm not, maybe that's not a nice thing to say, but it's the truth. <laughs> and so we just left. And uh, when we got the results of, of Sly County, not only did he not beat me, but I beat him 808 to 202. In Sly County. Exactly four to one. <laughs> and I can remember it because it's exactly four to one. I, I did about the, about that same way in, in the other counties and probably got uh, 75% of the vote overall. Uh, and so I was, I was happy about the outcome. I thought it was, uh, it was a good outcome for my first race. Folks, we're talking to Larry Walker. He's a well-known attorney, well-known state representative, served 32 years in the Georgia State House. We're going to talk some more about that. He's got more stories than you can shake a stick at. So, Larry, let's change gears. And you found yourself taking Sam Nunn's, not only his position, but you literally sat in his desk in the chamber, right? And and you, you quickly figured out that you had to work to build relationships with people in the legislature to, to make a difference there. And I, again, I think that's a great life lesson, whether you're in politics or not. Uh, you knew you couldn't do this alone. So just talk about how that transpired when you got in that seat. I got his chair, so I, I sit in his chair, in his seat. Right. And that was assigned to me because I guess it was easy to assign it to me because it was a house and county man that was not running and a house and county man that was coming. And so I got his seat. And when they seated me, they seated me next to a tall, dark-haired, almost shy kind of a fellow, introverted to some extent, but uh, as I would learn uh, quickly and a fine, fine individual, and that person was uh, named Joe Frank Harris, later to be governor of Georgia. Joe Frank uh, was vice chair of appropriations, and to his left was Sloppy Floyd, who was chair of appropriations, and then it was Lyle. And, and I immediately became good friends with Joe Frank Harris. So he and I were, were great friends, and his wife and Janice became good friends, and they were in the inner circle. Uh, and we started, we got in the inner circle through them, really. But anyway, Sloppy Floyd had a heart attack and died in one of the hotels in Atlanta that year. And, and Speaker Murphy, Tom Murphy, he appointed Joe Frank Harris to chair of the Appropriations Committee. And again, that was a big thing. I mean, that's where all of the money, you decide who, where the money's gonna go, Appropriations Committee. The Speaker of the House was, uh, good gracious, I think, George Smith, yes, George Smith. In my first year, in December of that year, George L. had a heart attack and he died. Uh, Tom Murphy was just a regular member, and I, I'll never forget the conversation I had with Joe Frank. We were talking about who was going to support the Speaker. And Joe Frank said to me, Larry, we're gonna vote for Tom Murphy. He didn't say, I think you ought to vote for Tom Murphy, or what we ought to be for Tom Murphy. He said, Larry, we're gonna be for Tom Murphy. And you know what I said? Yes, sir. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> Tom Murphy uh, won, as you know, and, and uh, I said he strided over the state house like the Colossal, and he did. <laughs> and uh, he was the 
for years, as you know, he was the most influential legislator in Georgia. Right. Mr. Murphy did a great job. You had to get to know him. I, I got to love him. Uh, he told me I was his right arm. Uh, he was very nice to me when he went to the leaders, state legislative leaders meetings. Uh, he didn't take his chief of staff. He took me. And I went with him, and, and he was a great uh, benefit to me over the years, and and I, I, I learned to love him. He was gruff at times. He Public relations, he wasn't really good at public relations, but he was a good man. And if he told you something, you could bank it. I'd bring him to Perry every year and fish and feed him, and, and uh, I can't say too much good about Murphy. There's been a lot bad said about it, but it's, it's said by people that don't know what they're talking about, really. So, you know, I hadn't been up there very long, two years, and I was kind of in the inner circle, not that I had any particular office that I was holding or a chairmanship that I was holding, but I was in the inner circle because of who my friends were. It didn't take long. You became floor leader, right? And then later you became majority leader. So talk about that ascension into when you started getting really powerful in Georgia politics, and you were. Joe, Joe Frank told me one night and he was going to run for governor. I, I didn't think he could win. I really didn't. Uh, he was kind of uh, shy, and uh, I liked him a lot. And I went home and I told Janice, I said, Janice, we need to support Joe Frank. I said, he's a good man, and if he, he runs, I don't think he's going to win. But if he does win, we'll be thrilled to death, and if he doesn't win, we say we supported a mighty good man. And we worked hard for it. We put signs out, and we went to stuff, and we called on people, and, of course, a lot of other people worked hard for it. And lo and behold, he got elected governor. And uh, I was thrilled to death that it was a place in Atlanta called Dunphy's. <laughs> and they had a big celebration that night, and Janice and I went up to the celebration, and it was it was something. I'll never forget it. And frankly, I worked harder for Joe Frank than I ever worked for myself. And uh, But he was the governor, and he told me that night at the Dunphy's celebration, he said, I want you to be my floor leader. I said, I'm thrilled to death. I said, it's just two things. I said, I, I, if you you had a floor leader and two assistants back then. Now you have three floor leaders. But I was the floor leader, and I was I could have two assistants. And I told them I wanted Warren Evans from Thompson, Georgia, and I wanted Calvin Smiry from Columbus. Now that was a that was a little different situation. And Calvin was going to be if Joe Frank approved it. He's going to be the first African American in leadership position. Joe Frank said that certainly you can. They can be the floor leaders. Calvin is just Warren too, but Warren, uh, his tenure, he got to be the insurance commissioner, and then uh, he got defeated when he ran for re-election or ran for election. But Calvin was uh, he? He was a leader up there for years and did so much good. He did. He could get votes that nobody else could get. Important things. The World Congress Center, for example. There was some opposition uh, among the black legislators. Calvin convinced them that it was a thing to do. We got the votes. We passed it. Build the World Congress Center. There's no telling how much that has meant to the state of Georgia. 
and uh, I, I had hold him in high respect and enjoy seeing him every now and then. And but that was my first uh, position of leadership uh, was was being Joe Frank Harris's uh, floor leader. And the floor leader of the eyes and ears for the governor. You meet with the governor every morning during the session and talk about what we're going to try to accomplish. And we had a great year, the first year. We uh, And I was his floor leader for four years. Now, after four years, there was another death, and there was an opportunity for, to elect a majority leader. And I decided to run for to resign as the floor leader and run as majority leader. And, in fact, I did that and got elected. Hmm. So you also, during your time there, and you probably won't say this, but I will, there's a huge ag center in Perry uh, that is the home of the Georgia National Fair that people from all over Georgia go to every year, plus all the other events they have that has been very successful. The highway that runs in front of it is called Larry Walker Boulevard. There's also a public fishing lake that you were instrumental. So you probably wouldn't bring this up, but I'm going to make you do it. Please tell us how that came about, because I know you were behind all that, coming getting that stuff into Perry where you lived. Well, my daddy came here as an ag teacher. He was the first vocational teacher in the county, and he started the FFA at Perry High School. He also taught at Lanier, which is now Central in Macon, and uh, he started the FFA there. And uh, he was real interested in us uh, being involved in those kind of programs and, and uh, showing, I showed cows. And I won the show in Albany, which was equivalent to the state show. They didn't have a state show per se, but we were involved in that. So when our children came along, we wanted them to be involved in it. Larry, Wendy, John Gray, and Russell. Larry and Wendy, the oldest two, and they both showed uh, hogs, and they both won the state show at two different times. But we went to the state show in Macon at Fairgrounds a beautiful uh, round uh, building, but when you got in there, you could write your name on any seat in there, so much dust. And they had about a hundred head of hogs, maybe more, and children trying to get them ready for the show. And they had two faucets in the mud. And I was there and working with my children, Janice always working with them. And when I went back to Atlanta on Sunday afternoon, I got up on Monday morning and I went to see Mr. Murphy and I told him about it and how bad it was. And he said, we're going to do something about it. And then I went to see Henry Reeves, who was chairman of the Ag Committee. He really got fired up about it. And he said, we're going to do something about it. And so we started working on it. It was a big deal. And the first money we got for it, I, I really talked to the Appropriations Committee Chairman, and the first money we got for it was $15 million. Hmm. It has been a huge success. About a million people come to that facility every year. About 550,000 people come to the fair every year. And uh, I just can't tell you how popular it is and how economically the impact it's had. Exceeded all my expectations, though, to be honest about it. I never conceived that it would be as big as it has been and as popular as it 
has been. And, and frankly, we had people saying, oh, it's too far away from the population centers of Georgia. It won't work. And I was, I was nervous about that. Now, I would say, oh, yes, it will work. But I, I was very nervous about it. And probably the first pay, I had 250,000 people or so. Later to have 550,000. You can, you can look at it this way. That's Sanford Stadium full of people six times at one fair. It turned out to be a perfect place. It's right on the interstate, yes. right in the heart of Georgia. People can come from the south. They would never go all the way to Atlanta and to something like that. And it's, it's in a perfect place. So, wow, what a, what a story. And uh, it's an amazing place. There's no, it is first class. We had this big controversy in the state about the flag. And you had to decide what was most important to you, whether you were going to stand and do the right thing or not do the right thing, no matter the consequences. So talk about that, Larry. Well, it was a hot issue. It was real hot and uh, hot all over Georgia. And and I'm, I'm just being honest. This is, doesn't speak well of me, I guess, but I'm going to tell it anyway. What I would say to my people, they said, what are you going to do about this flag vote? I said, oh, man, you know what I'm going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do myself. The flag was the old Confederate flag for people that are listening, which is very controversial. What happened, Roy Barnes was governor, a great, another great friend of mine, still is. Uh, he, in his first term, I wish he'd waited till his second term, and he might have been governor for eight years rather than four. But he decided he was going to go ahead and, and try to change the flag. And it was a hot issue. I mean, people wanted to, they wanted to make you tell them what you were going to do and that kind of thing. And in any event, uh, the governor asked me to make the last speech. And I was kind of, as a result of that, uh, I was kind of uh, in charge of it, really. But I, I did make, I, I was set to make the last speech. There was a bill in the rules committee that had to do with the flag. And what happened is that they decided, we decided, that we would substitute a change in the flag bill for that bill. It would not have passed. It could not. It was that same subject matter. And as long as it was, as long as it was germane, you could attach this bill on that bill. And there were about five or six of us, then the governor and two or three other people, who created a strategy about what was going to be done. And we met at the governor's mansion, and I thought surely it would get out. Stuff like that usually gets out. Right. It did not get out. Nobody talked about it except among that group. And what happened on a Friday, the other bill was in the rules committee, and some of the members of the rules committee substituted the flag change bill for that bill. It was germane. <laughs> and roll that thing out on Friday morning. And that's the first the members had heard of it. You, you can't imagine how the atmosphere was in the house. It was like ice water had been poured on everybody in there. <laughs> it, and it was electric in there. And uh, th th this was the bill that people had been avoiding taking a position on that they were gonna have to take a position on. And so the debate started on Friday morning. And it went all day long. About 6 o'clock on Friday afternoon, Mr. Murphy 
as he only he could do, he pointed his finger at me and motioned for me to come up to the to the podium, and I did. And uh, he told me, he said, Larry, I'm going I'm going to uh, close this thing down just a few minutes, and we'll come back Monday and we'll vote on this. And I said, Mr. Speaker, please don't do that. Please don't do it. If you let these people go home over the weekend, you'll never pass this bill. They're going to go to church. They're going to go to other places, and people are going to come up to them and say, you better not vote for this bill. So he, he finally said, okay. He said, he said, we'll go through and get through with it. And I've got my speech here, and if you would allow me to, I want to read, I want to read just a little bit of it, if that's all right with you. You go right ahead. I wrote this speech, and interestingly enough, it didn't take me long to write it. I don't, I, I don't know why, <laughs> but I, I didn't spend a lot of time writing it. It just sort of came to me. I made this speech on uh, uh, the night of uh, January 24, 2001. My seat was right there in the front on the aisle on the, uh, on the front, front line of, of the chairs. I just made the longest walk that I have made in my 28-year career in the house. It is the six and a half feet from my desk to this well. Politically speaking, it might be one of the last walks I will ever make. For many reasons, I consider this walk as politically dangerous and maybe ill-advised, but certainly significant. I do not make the walk without certain knowledge of the possible political consequences. Despite the personal gravity of the walk, it pales into almost nothingness when compared to the walking done by, by my gray ancestors and Walker ancestors and May ancestors and Nichols ancestors on both sides of the conflict during the war between the states. And it is absolutely nothing when compared to the 12-mile forced march without food or water that General Stonewall Jackson's men made at Chancellorsville to help assure a great Confederate victory. And then I skip, skip and I pick it up here. I read from portions of Edward G. Longacre's book, Picket, and from that chapter entitled Grand But Fatal Day, Longacre is speaking of Picket. But nothing could have prepared him for the sights and sounds that beset him as the grand but fatal day came to an end, his once mighty division had been reduced to incoherent clumps of leaderless men. Pickett's command had virtually ceased to exist as a fighting force. Pickett stared at the long line of guns through which his men had passed at the start of the advance, then exclaimed to their crews, Why did you not halt my men here? Great God, where, oh, where is my division? Then I pick it up with what I had to say. I am a son of the South, as Southern as anybody in this body. In a sea of Southern draws, mine is one of the thickest and most pronounced. I skip again. I want my grandchildren to love their Southern heritage. I love the South. Then, 1832 to 1860, the Underground Railroad, we're talking about people that made long walks, 
What about the thousands of slave, slaves that made this wall? They walked out of slavery and to freedom. And what about the walk made by Nat Turner, a Negro slave and preacher who led the most famous slave revolt in the United States history? And then there was the walk over the bridge in Selma, Alabama, and the marches in Birmingham and Albany and Washington, D.C., and Jackson and Perry, Georgia. I skip again. In 1961, our predecessors had to vote as to whether or not the schools in our state would be closed. Had I been a member of this body, I hope that I would have had the courage to vote to keep our schools open. In 1984, a vote was taken to honor for the holiday, the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King. With increasing pride, I say that I cast a vote in the affirmative. My five grandchildren call me grandbuddy. I like the name. They tell me it is the same name I gave my grandfather Gray when I was four or five years old. I wish my grandbuddy was here today. He was a Methodist, but most, more importantly, he was a Christian. He was a Republican, a delegate to the Republican National Convention. And in 1948, the only Republican mayor in the state as mayor of Perry. But more importantly, he was tolerant, he was fair, he was a friend to black people when being their, being their friend was not necessarily the thing to be. He would be proud of me today. He would applaud my vote to change our flag. I skip again. I want them to be able to say 40 years after my death that grandbuddy was fair and tolerant and he did the right thing. But after all, isn't this much more important than whether we might be allowed to return to this place? I urge you to join me in this walk. In the Bible's Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, are these words. To everything there's a season, and in time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Now is the time for us to pluck up what has been planted. Now is the time for us to build up. Now is the time for us to heal. And with that, I took my seat to a standing ovation. I believe everybody in the house just about. And uh, we got the votes. Uh, we needed 91. I think we probably got 10 or 12 more than that. And we would have changed the flag eventually, regardless of this. It would have been changed. Might have been two years later, four years later. But it was time to change it. We got Robbins Air Force Base here in this county. They would not have flown our flag had we not changed it. And you can cite a lot of other examples of why it was a good and smart thing to do. We got a good, we got ended up with a, a very good flag, and I'm proud that I was a part of uh, making that change. Well, one of the things that is you, continuous story in your story is you using common sense, diplomacy, uh, putting others above yourself, period, and doing the right thing, period throughout your career. I know that's true. Uh, I got to ask you a couple of questions. 
when you look at what's going on in the national political arena, it, it appears, and I'm not in it, that most people, they, they do things so they get reelected more than they do things that is really the right thing to do. Do you see that like that, or is that just me? or is that What, is your, what are your thoughts on what's going on politically in the, in the country today? Well, I think there are a lot of mighty good people in this in the in the United States uh, Congress. I think they a lot of them are good people. I think that that though the whole the whole country on in all areas is in a bad time. Uh, when you turn on the television every night, and there's uh, not every night, but so many of the nights, as new shootings have gone on, people killed. Uh, we've got economic problems. We've uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned. Now I know, I know that uh, old folks talk about what it used to be better. They've always done that, I guess, for in my lifetime anyway. But I do think we've got serious problems, and I think we've got to return to the basics. And and uh, but but I, a lot of this stuff I don't understand. I, I can't understand it. I, I try to follow it, and I just don't understand it. And uh, I hope and pray that we find our way and that we manage to, what I would say, right the ship, because I don't think it's righted now. I don't blame it on anybody. I don't blame it on Biden. I don't blame it on Trump. Uh, I, I blame it on a lot of people, a lot of people. I think it's more than one, and and uh, we, we've got to return to the basics and return to, to values that my mother and daddy had. And a lot of the people that are listening to that, other than daddy had and uh we until we do that i don't know that we can write anything yeah I'm, I'm not sure there's a lot of larry walkers there i know there's some uh but but you got to wonder where people can use common sense to come together for the good of the country so what is the greatest lessons you've learned in politics the first thing in politics is uh, if you tell somebody you're going to do something, you better do it. And, you, and if you can't do it, you need to go to them and explain why you can't. I've had to do that some. I've told them I'd support something. I found out more about it, and I would go to them. And I, I just think basic decency and honesty and uh, giving the other man, try to try to put yourself in his or her place and, and say, you know, I, I understand why you feel like that. You explained it to me, and I don't feel like you, and I'm not going to vote for this, or I am going to vote against it, and this is why. But uh, there's a lot of mighty good people in public office. And I found out in the years that I was there that most people were trying to do the right thing, the vast, vast majority. Now, what the right thing is varies with people, but... The, the bad gets a lot more publicity than the good does, I think. What are you most proud of? I, I'm proud of, obviously, I'm proud of the Ag Center. I think it's been a tremendous, you, you go to a, a, a FFA or a 4-H banquet, and let's say there are a thousand young people in the audience. There's not hardly any of them that are on drugs. There's not hardly any of them that would steal we need to turn to programs like that, and a lot of the best programs we have have been done away with. And I, 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 a lot of it's beyond my comprehension. I, I just can't see what they're trying to do or say. And I think we got to pray. We got to go back to some of the religious. Whether you are 
religious person or not, the the the, the rules, so to speak, and the the do's and don'ts are still good things to try to follow. Uh, and we've lost a lot of that. And I'm a Methodist, and our Methodist church is in a mess right now. Uh, I don't have any idea how it's going to turn out, but uh, so much of the of the values that we had, as, as I had as a young person, are no longer used very much, and I think we need to return to that. I agree 100%. I have a feeling that when this conversation and I get this out there, I'll push a button in a week or so, and this will be streaming where people can have access to it anywhere in the world. I also know that there's going to be people, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, or maybe even great-great-grandchildren not even born yet, are going to listen to this one day after you and I both are dead and gone and they surely won't know who I am, but they'll be thinking that's my ancestor. What do you want them to know about you? First thing I think you ought to know about me is I'm one of the most fortunate people that have ever lived. Hmm. Uh, my grandparents, my granddaddy was a cameraman at Universal Studios in New York, in uh, Los Angeles. Hollywood. He and my grandmother, they, he was from Danville, Virginia, and she was from Danville, Indiana. I don't know how all that worked, but they got married, and the day they got married, they went to California, and he was a cameraman out there. And then they went to Homestead, they went to uh, Tombstone, Arizona, and Homestead. And uh, my granddaddy told me he could hear Pancho Villa right across the raided across the border in Arizona and they could hear them shooting and and uh, then they ended up in Perry. You know, what are the chances I'd even be here? But I, I've just been, I've had such good grandparents and parents and brothers and sisters and I, I feel like I'm one of the most, one of the luckiest people that ever lived. Well, I think that the, your children and grandchildren listening to this will think they're the most fortunate people ever lived, too, uh, because you are their grandfather, great-grandfather, and where you came from, and the, the DNA is very, very strong. Last words, what advice do you have for, for your family, people that are coming up young, trying to make it in this world? Uh, what's your advice? You can't overvalue the, the teaching young people to, to work. And that, that, we don't do that much anymore. In fact, they, they, they kind of discourage it to some extent. I'm not talking about overworking people, but learning how to work. And so many people today, they graduate from high school, or maybe even college, they don't know much about work. And I think it, working builds character. My brother David and I, David's four years younger than me, we sold peanuts on the streets of Perry. And I learned so much from that. I learned the more the tea, the better they like it, and the more peanuts they buy. <laughs> First, I thought they were being ugly to us. They, they liked us. And uh, we would bag up every Saturday. Uh, we'd bag up 100 bags. And uh, we charged them that 10 cents a bag. And that meant we made $10. And Daddy would put nine dollars of that in a savings account and we would take a dollar of that to church the next uh, day wow. we sold them on saturday and uh, 
How many people get that kind of training today? They probably wouldn't even let you sell peanuts on the streets of Pierre because you didn't have a license. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.